Alright, hello everybody. Welcome back to the John Q. Public Podcast Show. Episode number four. And I think eventually we'll probably <laughs> we'll probably actually have like seasons of this, which is what I'm you know, kind of trying to do. But you know, we'll see how, how that goes. Um, as you saw in the title for this episode. Right, I I was listening to the radio yesterday um, here in the Detroit market, and or actually it's two days ago, and they were talking about load management with the NBA, and it's a really interesting concept. And again, you know, it's one of those things where it's definitely. I don't want to say it's like a hot button issue, but like we've kind of gotten to that point, at least in my you know opinion, where like load management with the NBA is like stupid. Really, honestly, go with me for a minute on this. There's there's enough players that would agree with me, and if we look at, I think a great example, Michael Jordan. Back in the early 2000s, I forget what year it was, like it was a quote out there, but he basically alluded to the fact that load management was going to be a thing in the NBA eventually. And it is a regular thing now. And it's one of those things where, as a fan of the NBA, there's something that's gotta get. Um, I have believed for the longest time they play too many games. And I know that's a money thing, right? They would never they would net well, I mean I guess maybe at some point they could eliminate games. But honestly, what do they need eighty two regular season games for? Honestly. And the same with the NHL, you know, Major League Baseball is a whole nother thing at hundred and sixty. Like, that's absolutely absurd. But if we, you know, if we look at the NBA, that, okay, 82 games in a season, I don't think is unreasonable, right? They're competing for, you know, two or three, you know, games, maybe four games in a week. Um, It's not that much to ask guys to play the substantial majority of them. You know, if you look back in, you know, in the, like the heyday of the NBA, in my opinion, right, because, you know, guys played the vast majority of the game. It's incredible what this has gotten into. Um, I, it might have been Kyrie Irving last week missed a game or sat out a game. It's like insane to me. You know, like, these guys get paid millions, right? Yes, they practice, and yes, they put in the work during the week, and, you know, I I won't argue against the fact that, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like a, to hear about, you know, something like back tightness, or whatever you want to call it, right? Some sort of fatigue, or, you know, that's fine, but... A primary question that I have is, okay, is the way that the product 
is put out on the floor where you've got things like back-to-backs or you've got things, you know, where you might, maybe you've got travel complications because they flew across country or, you know, whatever it is, you know, like you can make, come up with whatever reasons or excuses or whatever you want. Okay. But like in the modern NBA where we're at, right, is there a legitimate systemic issue? And, uh, you know, I would argue that there is because you look at how frequently guys are not playing due to, you know, back tightness or, you know, I'll keep coming back to that because I think it's absolutely ridiculous. But, um, you know, these guys are at the highest level. They've got the best personal trainers, physios, therapies, nutrition, all this stuff. Why is it that in the modern NBA, we have load management issues? we didn't used to have them where we used to have guys that played 80 games a year and then went into the playoffs. We had the Kobe Bryant's of the world who put in the time and they were out there and they were playing some of my favorite teams ever at the Pistons of the, you know, the 03 to, to 06. Like those guys played darn near every game, right? They were out there and it was a more physical game back then. I mean, guys can't touch each other now, right? And, you know, the pace of the game might be a little bit faster now, right? So maybe the guys run a little bit more, but, like, they're supposed to be able to handle that on back-to-back days and stuff like that. If you if you think about it, they're quite literally only, quote-unquote, working for a handful of hours every week for, like, eight months of the year. Now, yes, they train. I get it, right? But they should be training. Like, you know, I'm not a professional NBA player. I go train, lift weights, that kind of stuff. Like, they are paid to be doing that. There should not be ever a conversation of load management, right? What if you have a guy who's anticipating so-and-so, you know, playing in a game, has no reason to expect otherwise, right? Spends good money, they go to the game, take his family, right? They go out, they spend their time, try to support. And that player doesn't play because of some, you know, minor little thing dealing with maybe some fatigue or muscle tightness or whatever it is, right? That's a huge letdown, right? You should at least be playing in part of the game, right? So, okay, maybe instead of 35 minutes, you play 20, but like get in there and play. You're paid to play, right? But maybe maybe load management is here to stay, at least it seems like it. So maybe, maybe the players' contracts and how they get paid needs to change, right? Maybe it needs to be that they get paid per game. And go, go with me on this for a second, because I know some people will be like, well, what if they're out for, you know, an entire season or something like that? Obviously, if they have a legitimate injury, right, have something in the contract that, you know, makes up for that or whatever. And I know from, from a player's perspective, they want guarantees when they sign a contract because they know that they could get hurt, 
right? They could, you know, it's fair to say that they could get hurt. So, okay, let's build in some guarantees. But the thing that just irks me to no end, right, is Guy signs, and I'll use Kyrie as an example because he's a player that, you know, demands, right, the highest amount of salary, right? So let's say he signs a four-year deal for, you know, $160 million. Or like whatever the max is that you can get in the NBA. So his his annual average is forty million, right? And he gets you know x amount guaranteed. Let's say he gets you know a quarter of that guaranteed. So he gets forty million guaranteed, right? and the rest is you know base salary, whatever it might be. Well. It seems like it would be more fair that, okay, he's got his guarantee built in, okay? So then on an annual basis, right, he's going to get X per game that he plays in. And if he sits out a game without some sort of legitimate injury, right, because he wants to sit out or he has back tightness or whatever it is, right, no paycheck for that game. This isn't, the NBA isn't hockey. It's not NFL football, right? It's not the physical game. It's, it's not to the extent, right? Yes, injuries happen in the NBA, but they have done so much to try to protect these players that has washed down or, you know, just taken the product and watered it down, right? If you watched, you know, most recently the, 2023 NBA All-Star Game, uh, the fact that there was no defense played in that All-Star Game and they scored well over 300 points between the two teams, encroaching upon 400 points in a 48-minute basketball game, is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. But nobody, nobody will do anything about it because the NBA right? Their MO at this point is we want to see lots of scoring, etc. And it's really, really sad because some of the best basketball that we ever saw was the 2003-2004 Detroit Pistons. And this is not everybody's cup of tea. I've heard enough people talk about it that think that the, the basketball that they played was like too much defense and it was not enough scoring. And, and that's fine. But good NBA basketball should be like, you know, one team wins the game, you know, 90 to 85. But like all this routine scoring and and all this stuff, it would be so much more enjoyable if it wasn't just about let's get these teams to score as many points as possible. Because that's what it's come to, right? Shooting tons of threes playing very little defense, guys can't be physical or they're choosing not to or whatever it might be, right? So anyway, so, but load management, like, is it truly a problem? And I I don't know. Is it that our expectation is the problem, right? Should we expect that LeBron James or Kevin Durant or Chris Paul or any of these guys, right, should we have the expectation that if they play more than 40 games in a season, which 
you know, most of them do, right? So, like, you know, should that be the expectation that they're they're never going to play back-to-backs, you know, unless they absolutely had to for playoff race or whatever? Like, if they have back-to-backs, is that the expectation that they're, they're just not going to play, so don't buy your ticket for that game? Or, you know, is it the expectation that, you know, players won't try to play through minor things which could work themselves out in the course of the game, like back tightness or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, yeah, legitimate injuries aside, there's no reason that these guys who get paid tens of millions of dollars a year, millions and millions and millions, can't suck it up and get out there and play, right? Or again, you know, does it does it need to be something where we as fans change our expectations. You know, and we look at, you know, we look at, like, how they go about things, right, in the game, you know, and because the game is not nearly as physical as it used to be, right, why why are so many guys still having injuries and dealing with them, right? You, you do, you still see the you know, the injuries, you know, guys constantly being hurt or going for procedures that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have years ago. Like, is that, is that a difference in, <clears throat> is that a difference in, like, the way the science is now, the way the league wants to be now, all that stuff? I don't know. And then we look at, like, you know, if we dive into for a minute, do we have an issue? And, you know, I, I think it's kind of surprising to me in a way that this dynamic exists. But think of this. So, right, the United States has issues with China, right? We clearly do from a geopolitical standpoint, from economics, from all the things, right? But China is a huge business partner for the NBA. It's a very weird dynamic. It's a dynamic that I certainly disagree with. It's a dynamic that is completely driven by money. Uh, I'm a big fan of Enos Cantor Freedom, and I think he definitely got a raw deal with the NBA. You can look him up. He was unafraid to speak his mind, and he spoke his mind, and he lost his job because of it with the NBA. Phenomenally talented, great basketball player, really, really good guy. If you listen to him speak, very intelligent, very well-spoken. Is completely against all of the issues that the NBA's association with China causes, right? So you've got everything from shoes being made over there by Nike and other companies. You've got LeBron James and several other high-profile athletes that have relationships with China from, you know, driven purely by economics and money when they could very easily bring their business over here to the United States and utilize the United States resources. But China is a multi-billion dollar cash cow for the NBA. And it's really, really sad that they put themselves in that position. Because you know the NBA isn't just all of a sudden <clears throat> going to cut ties with China, right? They have a tremendous 
amount of tie-in, <clears throat> excuse me, to the Chinese, you know, society, whether it's you know, products, NBA China, you know, shoes, jerseys, players, all that stuff. It would be nice to see the NBA step up and say, you know what, this is, yes, we're making money off it, but it's truly bad business. We need to step back. We need to take a break and reevaluate what's going on here. But, you know, if you think about how powerful the almighty dollar is, I think the, the contrast between the issues that we have with China and how much the NBA takes from China from an economic standpoint, the dynamic there, it just doesn't work for me, at least from my perspective. And it's really, really sad, you know? And it's one of those things where it, as a common man, right, it's very easy to see what's going on. And it's very easy for me to say, this is not a good idea. It shouldn't continue. There are alternatives. Why don't we utilize those alternatives? But they won't because the, the money is too powerful for the owners of the teams, for the products, and all that stuff. And the NBA is so deeply in bed with all these moving pieces and parts that there won't ever be any change there unless something absolutely catastrophic happens. It wouldn't. And then, you know, we look at other things like I'm going to touch on before we get done here today. I want to touch on something that I want to do, probably going to do a, a whole episode on this because it's really it's its, own <laughs> its own topic. But let's touch on PGA Tour golf for a minute, a couple minutes anyway, and the whole live golf controversy, right? Um, it's a really interesting power dynamic through this whole thing. Um, you know, do I think the PGA Tour has an argument for, you know, live golf causing some issues that live golf shouldn't have? Sure. I think Live Golf has some arguments about, you know, the potential monopoly aspect of the PGA Tour and preventing, you know, an open market with professional golf. Sure. I think that, you know, you could make that, that case for both sides of it. But the, the really interesting thing to me is when it, this, a lot of this comes down to money from the standpoint of, right, a lot of people criticized live golf, right, where the funding came from, which you can look this up, and it essentially comes from the Saudi Arabian government, what they call the People's Investment Fund, or, you know, whatever, which is essentially tied to Crown, Crown Prince, Saudi Arabia, um, but, right, we look at the funding there, right, comes from that, and Saudi Arabia has a, you know, pretty terrible history with rights violations and, and some of that stuff, which rightfully show, rightfully so, is a problem. But then we look across the street, if you will, 
And the PGA Tour, who is criticizing where Liv is getting a ton income, has partnerships with Saudi Arabia. That doesn't look good. And they've tried to kind of, like, brush that off, and nobody's really, like, talking straight about this whole thing, you know? And people involved with Liv, like the players and whatnot, I think were, you know, wrongfully put in that position because they're looking at it like, you know, this is income for me and my family. It's an opportunity for me to continue to play competitive golf because I'm, you know, not competitive on the PGA Tour anymore. Or I might not be, or, you know, this is guaranteed money to me, whereas the PGA Tour is not, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, these players, right, they take the money, and it was pretty substantial for most everybody. We've, we've not ever heard, like, how much, you know, maybe some of the, like, lower-tier guys have gotten, but, you know, the high-profile guys, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, like, we've heard about, you know, about $100-plus million in guaranteed money that these guys got signing a contract to play for with golf or, you know, however long. And, like, you know, good for them. Go get your money. Do I agree how this whole thing went down? No. Do I agree that the PGA Tour should be able to control what other things are going on? No. Like, Live Golf or whoever should be able to exist if they want to. The problem that we ran into, though, is that you have the PGA Tour who structures players like 1099 independent contractors, right? that they also want to have their cake and eat it too from the standpoint of like they're independent contractors but they're required to sign a essentially like a player's agreement with the PGA Tour that then gives the PGA Tour power over them through membership and etc. And that doesn't seem fair. Like if they're truly independent contractors, they're truly independent contractors. But Right, we can have a slight little counter argument of like let's say let's say you're an insurance agent, right? So you're a ten ninety nine independent contractor and you work for a local insurance agency, right? So that's who your contracts are through and everything. You can't just because you can get more money go to like another local insurance agency and just go work for them because your contracts are through the insurance company or insurance agency that you're at. So the insurance agency that you're at, right, has an interest in you making money for them, and so you can't just go get releases and that kind of thing. So I, I think that, like, the PGA Tour has some grounds for, like, its argument of, you know, we don't like that these players, you know, went this way. It's, you know, competing against us, right? Kind of like the whole non-compete aspect of things, which there is some fairness to that because the PGA Tour... Right, generates a ton of money off of these guys, especially the high-profile ones, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, and whatnot. And, you know, that's a direct hit to the revenue for the PGA Tour. These guys signed a membership with the PGA Tour, etc., etc. Uh, this could have all gone down a lot differently. Now, for the guys that were out there, like Kevin Na, and say Bubba Watson and some others, like, they resigned their tour membership, which that's fine. But again, still, 
feel like the PGA Tour, in a way, does have the argument of kind of like the whole non-compete thing, but I don't know. Um, but, you know, kind of coming back to the whole thing of, like, where the money's coming from, you know, in this situation, um, you know, do we, do we think that there's not like a double standard, right? But if the PGA Tour has sponsors who are tied in with Saudi Arabia and some of this other stuff, I think a Ramco was, was one of them and whatnot, the LPGA Tour too, but we don't have the live contract live conflict with the LPG tour. Um, you know, are we are we in a situation where like this could be so much simpler than what it is? It's kinda like the PGA tour, right? Had this good thing going. There was no competition for the PGA tour because it was like either you played on the PGA tour, you played on the European tour, you played on the Corn Ferry tour, or like some subsidiary of the PGA Tour. But there's never anything that was in direct competition with the PGA Tour for its best players. And that's kind of what we've been dealing with. Now, yeah, some of the some of the high-profile PGA Tour players, like Rory McIlroy, Tiger Woods, and some others, like to some extent, right, have voiced that, you know, their commitment to the PGA Tour, and, you know, and that's all well and good. But, you know, we've arrived at this place of PGA Tour where it, there's so many players out there now at a high level that because there's only so many spots with the PGA Tour, like what's so inherently wrong with another tour, other professional golf associations or whatever you want to call it? Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a good thing. It gives people more to watch, more time but the PGA Tour kind of hurt itself when it got to a point that they've got so many events. There's entirely too many. Like, the PGA Tour should run from, like, January to August. In all honesty, maybe September, right? And you've got either, you know, Ryder, President's Cup in October. But, like, PGA Tour doesn't need 40-some events in a year. It's entirely too many. And again, it's all driven by money, right? We all know this, right? If the PGA Tour could have a sponsor for 52 weeks a year and they could field a tournament 52 weeks a year, they'd do it in a heartbeat without thinking about it. Because as Jay Monahan would say, you know, we want to give our members as many opportunities as possible. Well, you've also cut into the quality of it, right? When you've got so many, you get your best players so spread out, right? If we go back to the early 2000s, right? When Tiger was in his heyday, like, that was, like, really a great time for golf. You didn't have these silly FedEx Cup playoffs or anything like that. You know, you had a money order of merit, which that's a great way to look at it. Um, you know, now you've got the FedEx Cup and you've got playoffs, which aren't even all that good. That's another conversation for another day. But if we look at the dynamic of, of this all, again, and again, stemming from money and, and all that stuff, right, the PGA Tour could have done this a lot differently than what it did. 
and not had nearly the level of issues that he has. Yes, Live Golf could have done this differently as as it came out, but I do give him credit. I give Greg Norman credit and Live Golf credit because initially they tried to schedule this like around PGA Tour big events and everything and work with them. And if the PGA Tour was quite literally ignoring them, shame on the PGA Tour because this could have worked to the benefit of the PGA Tour with, you know, Live Golf and everything. And instead, PGA Tour kind of shot themselves in the foot and some really great players left the PGA Tour to go play for Live Golf. If you look at the, the quote-unquote, kind of like the tear that John Rahm has been on the last, like, six months, it would be a lot different if Dustin Johnson and Cam Smith and Bryson DeChambeau and several other players were still playing full-time on the PGA Tour, it would have a dramatic impact on John Rahm. Not to take anything away from the wins that he's had, but I firmly believe, you know, if you said, let's say he won six times in the last six months or whatever, at least a couple of those would have gone to someone else. I firmly believe that, given the talent level, Brooks Kepka, another one, like, given the talent level that was there that went over to Live Golf, impacts what John Rahm is doing. So, if anything, you know, for some of these players like John Rahm and others, right, you should be thankful that Live Golf is here because not only has it increased the prize money that you're playing for because the PGA Tour had reacted to the Live Golf money, but also it took away some of your competition. And as much as John Rahm might say, well, I, I want more competition. I'm, I'm not happy these guys aren't here. Come on. You can't tell me that it's easier for you to win and you're sad about it, like, honestly. But anyway, yeah, with the PGA Tour as a whole, PGA Tour live things, though, is a whole other thing to dive into. But I, I don't know. I mean, is is NBA load management uh, a bad thing? And I'm not a proponent for it based on what these guys get paid. You know, the NBA China thing is, again, money, money, money. And the PGA Tour, I think it's a great case study when we look at, you know, the economics of, of all this. But again, just a common guy talking common stuff, common sense stuff with with some sports. And I think that's the beauty of, of this show is we're going to touch on a lot of different things. And it's going to be random, and that's the beauty of it. Um, but we got some fun stuff coming up, I hope, on the next, you know, handful of episodes. And, you know, we might do some, maybe some series of, like, you know, two or three episodes tying in together or whatever, but I try to keep these, you know, around a half hour or less, so, you know, we're kind of at that threshold here. So, thanks for listening to the John Q. Public Podcast Show. I hope that you enjoyed. I hope it's thought-provoking, and thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.